WRFI Community Radio News is made possible by listeners like you. Help us tell important stories about your community. Head to WRFI.org slash donate. This is WRFI Community Radio News for Wednesday, December 23rd, 2020. I'm Esther Kusin. And I'm Brett Balfour. Here is tonight's news for Ithaca and Watkins Glen. And local news. The Tompkins County Health Department is alerting the public of a potential COVID-19 exposure at the Walmart in Ithaca. The exposure occurred on Monday, December 14, 2020, from 8.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m., and Tuesday, December 15, from 2 to 2 p.m. to 12 a.m. The health department recommends anyone who may have been exposed to the virus to monitor their health for any COVID-19 symptoms. Learn about how to get tested at wrfi.org slash coronavirus. The Tompkins County Health Department is reporting that as of yesterday, there are 30 additional cases of COVID-19 in the county and 35 people released from quarantine. According to the County Health Department, that leaves 216 active cases of COVID-19 in Tompkins. 13 hospitalizations remain in Tompkins. It was reported by the Schuyler Health Department that a ninth county resident has passed away due to COVID-19. The individual was a female in her 80s. As of today, there are 11 new cases of COVID-19 in Schuyler, leaving 58 active cases. Four people remain hospitalized due to the virus. Thank you. 
The Seneca View skilled nursing facility is experiencing an increase in COVID-19 cases as announced by Schuyler Hospital officials this week. As of Monday, there were 18 known positive cases at Seneca View. Four of these residents are experiencing symptoms of COVID-19, reports the Odessa File. Since the beginning of the pandemic, Schuyler Hospital has been conducting rigorous testing. All Seneca View employees are tested at least twice a week when active cases are found in a specific hospital unit. Residents that test positive are separated from others. They are then placed in rooms with special air filters. All Seneca View employees are in full PPE at all times. The hospital has also restricted visitation, installed plexiglass shields in key areas, in addition to enhanced hand sanitizing stations. The New York State Department of Health has conducted five on-site visits at the facility and found no deficiencies by the hospital's team. In more coronavirus news, a new COVID-19 saliva test is now available at the drive-through testing center at Schuyler Hospital in Montour Falls. The Odessa file reports that county residents can now pre-register to take either test at the center by appointment. The Schuyler Hospital sampling site is only open on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and individuals can arrive only at the time of their appointment. If a person is taking the saliva test, they cannot eat, drink, or use tobacco products 13 minutes before their appointment. Any person that would like to register for a test should visit CayugaHealth.org. For more information, listeners can call the Schuyler COVID-19 hotline at 607-535-8602. At the top of the county legislature's December 15th meeting, lawmakers voted on a resolution Representing the 125th district. Alex was honored during the meeting for her service 
and a proclamation was read recognizing her recent election to the state assembly. Following the reading, Coach spoke of her time in the legislature and thanked her colleagues. Later in the meeting, County Administrator Jason Molino presented a report from the Emergency Operations Center regarding the status of the county's COVID-19 response. Molino commented on the large spike in cases following the Thanksgiving holiday. Public Health Director Frank Krupa discussed the success of local contact tracing efforts. Moreover, the county continues to urge its residents not to travel during the holiday season and instead celebrate virtually or with people in the same household. According to Krupa, the Tompkins County Health Department is shifting how it reports COVID-19 data to more closely track the state systems. The county will also be receiving batches of the Moderna vaccine in coming months. Krupa says that the state will be using pharmacies to contract with long-term facilities for distribution of the vaccine. At the conclusion of the meeting, county legislators voted unanimously to raise their salaries from the current 21400 to 22050 in 2024. The Ithaca Green Street Pharmacy is closing its doors after years of serving the community. Earlier this week, In New York State news, advocates for people living with disabilities are urging them to be aware of possible risks from COVID-19, plus the new vaccines and their right to information. Andrea Sears of the New York News Connection reports. With coronavirus vaccines now being distributed, advocates for people living with disabilities are stressing the importance of knowing if they are at increased risk of COVID-19. People with certain disabilities or on medications with particular side effects are more vulnerable to the effects of the virus, and people in nursing homes or group housing are more likely to become infected. These and other considerations will determine the priorities for vaccine distribution. Susan Dua with the Center for Independence of the Disabled New York says the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has information online about who is at greatest risk. There's a whole list of chronic or serious health conditions that would put them in the higher risk category that puts them higher up to receive vaccination. Information about COVID-19 vaccines and conditions that put people at increased risk from the coronavirus can be found on the CDC website at cdc.gov. Dua cautions that some people with specific health conditions may be advised not to get the vaccinations currently available, so it's important to find out if they could be at risk of an adverse reaction. People should speak with their own health practitioner and ask, based on their own health status and the medications they're taking, 
whether the vaccine is right for them at present. Conditions that weren't consulting a health care provider include allergic reactions to any of the ingredients of the COVID vaccine or to other vaccines. Dua points out that people living in nursing homes or other care facilities in New York can get help if their facilities fail to provide adequate information or explanations of vaccine risks and protocols. You can call the New York Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program if you believe perhaps that your right to be educated and to consent freely is being violated. Listings of long-term care ombudsmen by county are available through the New York Office for the Aging website at aging.ny.gov. For New York News Connection, I'm Andrea Sears. And in national news, Trump grants pardons and condemns the compromised stimulus package that Biden praises. And a state tax policy expert has ideas for raising local revenue. More on the latest U.S. election news, courtesy of our friends over at Pacifica Network and the Public News Service. Welcome to 2020 Talks, where we track the 2020 elections in uncharted territory. In what is expected to be one of many rounds of pardons, President Donald Trump granted clemency Tuesday to 20 people, including two convicted in the Robert Mueller Russia inquiry included as George Papadopoulos, a foreign policy advisor to Trump's 2016 campaign, and attorney Alex Vanderswan, both served prison time after pleading guilty to making false statements to federal officials. Noting that both parties condemned Russia for its recent hack of U.S. government agencies, including the Treasury and Commerce Departments, President-elect Biden blamed President Trump for the breaches. This assault happened on Donald Trump's watch when he wasn't watching, but rest assured, that even if he does not take it seriously, I will. Biden also praised lawmakers for compromising to pass a $900 billion stimulus package. He says he'll propose additional relief once in office. Congress did its job this week, and I can and I must ask them to do it again next year. But Trump tweeted late Tuesday that the relief package stimulus is, quote, an unsuitable disgrace, unquote. He is asking lawmakers to make changes, including much more money to individuals. In a novel approach, two of the most controversial elements were removed, aid to states and local governments, which Democrats wanted, and legal protection from COVID-related lawsuits for businesses, a Republican request. Next year, as many state governments begin their legislative sessions, they'll need to figure out how to balance tight budgets. A ballot initiative to help fund public education in California failed in November. It would have increased property taxes on commercial buildings. Kim Rubin directs the state and local finance initiative at the Urban Institute. She says it's generally hard to pass increases to property taxes to fund needed services. And property tax limits in places like California and Massachusetts are very popular, even though these are liberal states. Part of this comes down to voters, even if they feel like there's a lot of inequality, just being very concerned or conservative about changes to their property taxes. Rubin thinks voters may be more inclined to increase income taxes on the wealthy after the Trump administration's tax cuts for higher earners. But another kind of tax increase, albeit much smaller, was very popular. The one place that we did see a lot of support was states introducing and passing marijuana taxes. Four states voted to legalize and tax marijuana, Arizona, New Jersey, South Dakota, and Montana. California Governor Gavin Newsom chose California Secretary of State Alex Padilla to serve the rest of Vice President-elect Kamala Harris's two-year term in the Senate. Padilla will be the first Latino senator to represent California. On the flip side, the Senate loses its only black woman and rumors of Biden's secretary of education. He's expected to name Miguel A. Cordona, Connecticut's education commissioner, 
Dr. Cardona is Connecticut's first Latino commissioner of education. He was a public school educator for two decades. A sharp contrast to current education secretary, Betsy DeVos. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Laura Rossbrow-Tellum. Thanks for listening. That concludes our headline news for tonight. Coming up, you'll hear an interview of Cornell veterinarian Dr. Allison Stout about her research on feline coronaviruses. That's after the break on WRFI Community Radio News. Stay with us. Ribbon and Bows, performed by Richie and Rosie. They were some of the musicians performing live from the State Theater at the Save Our Roots fundraiser this past weekend. This is WRFI Community Radio News. I'm Esther Rutkison. Today, we return to the topic of COVID-19, this time taking a rather feline angle. You may have heard about cats getting COVID-19 on the news. So what happens when cats are infected? And should we be concerned? How many cats have been infected? And what should you do if you're infected with COVID-19 and have a cat in your household? Reporter and Cornell PhD student Candace Limper interviews Dr. Allison Stout, a veterinarian at Cornell researching feline coronaviruses, to answer these questions and more. I primarily study animal coronaviruses, but our lab, of course, is focused also on the zoonotic coronaviruses, including SARS-CoV-2. So I noticed that you recently gave a presentation at the Cornell COVID Summit. I did, yeah. So we have, our lab has been very focused, obviously, on the new coronavirus. So my research specifically, I have a project collaborating with a veterinarian in New York City to look at seroprevalence uh, to SARS-CoV-2 in cats. And so we know that cats are susceptible to the virus, but we don't know so much at the moment in the population. And so every so often we'll see cases that keep popping up or animals that have tested positive owned animals. And so we've been collaborating with a vet where there is actually a lot of the hospitals that back in March and April were seeing COVID patients. And so the veterinarian we're working with also has a lot of clientele that are doctors, nurses that would have been working on the front lines. And so kind of to understand in what would we would essentially consider a pretty high-risk population, what their pets might look like, and specifically their cats. So you said you're looking for a zero positive. What does that mean? 
So we are not actually looking for virus itself. We're looking for essentially a previous exposure. So after infected to the virus, the body will mount an immune response, and then we can look and try and find that immune response to see how many animals have been exposed. So how many samples have you gotten so far? Just over 50 samples, and from that we have data on about 29 of them. We, um, without going, I guess, into too much specifics, we do know that there are some positives from that, but there's more that we're still, you know, we still have more to be run and to look at. Um, and then the other part of some of this is how long, so similar to, we see all the news reports of looking at how long do humans have antibody responses, how long do those last, those same questions kind of apply to cats as well, how long do those antibody responses last, and so that's the second component of our research at the moment. So the symptoms in cats, is it the same as in humans? In a number of the cases that have been reported in animals, it's a described as a respiratory disease, so coughing, sneezing, nasal discharge, similar to that. But what's also interesting in cats is that they have their own coronavirus, so they have a species-specific feline coronavirus. And similar in many ways to SARS-CoV-2, most animals, most cats that are infected with feline coronavirus end up with a mild disease. It, in this case, it's a GI disease, so gastrointestinal. Um, and generally, those cats recover just fine. We don't really worry too much about them. Uh, but then there's a subset of cats that, for whatever reason, they develop systemic disease from feline coronavirus. And so when they go that path, they develop what's called feline infectious peritonitis. And so underlying that disease is essentially the development of systemic vasculitis. And then these cats, at the moment, almost, it's almost always fatal for these cats. They'll develop fluid in their abdominal cavity, around their heart, for instance. They'll have liver involvement and liver failure, kidney failure. They can have issues with their eyes and inflammation there. They can have neurological complications. And so kind of all of the things that we start to see these similar case reports with SARS-CoV-2 that, you know, there's involvement beyond just the respiratory tract. And so kind of some mysteries, I guess, with coronaviruses, but also what makes them interesting and also very challenging now for the doctors and nurses that are handling and managing these patients and trying to help those who have become infected. It seems like right now we're getting closer and closer to a vaccine. Um, I was just wondering if there's a vaccine for cats already. Feline coronavirus, there was some interest in developing a vaccine for feline coronavirus. That work pretty much been halted. And while I believe you can actually still buy a vaccine, it's not recommended. The reason it's not recommended is that in cats, one of the ongoing areas of research is this process called antibody-dependent enhancement. And so essentially, the development of antibody and then the non-neutralizing of the virus leads to 
moving the virus into a cell type called the macrophage and then distributing that and making the disease essentially worse. And so there's, of course, more research needed in that area and for the development of a feline coronavirus vaccine, but that at the moment is not recommended. Now, if we consider vaccines for SARS-CoV-2, there has been some recent interest also in developing a vaccine for cats for a number of reasons. One, that we do know they are infected, so I think they could be a potential model for human vaccines um, and for preclinical testing. Um, And then the other kind of considering if we need to keep the virus out of, you know, additional animal populations. Not saying that there would be a reservoir in cats by any means, but, you know, something to be thinking about. Do you have anything that you want to add that you want people to know? So I guess, so one of the things I'm really interested in is the concept of One Health. And so that's, you know, keeping animals, humans, and the environment safe and healthy. And so I think as we continue with SARS-CoV-2 and battling the pandemic, I mean, I think taking that approach is really important to always remember. I mean, thinking about the mink right now in Europe and what that means and thinking about our food supply and how, you know, we prevent future pandemics. I just wanted to uh, ask more questions about the One Health. What do you mean by that? Like, how can, I guess, everyday people consider that to be part of their life? Sure. Um, So I think there's kind of two ways to think about it. The first that most people think about is how we share diseases. And so if that's something like SARS-2, how can we, you know, if I'm as a person and I get infected and now I, my cat is also infected, what does that mean? Um, You know, we don't want our cat then to go out and infect wildlife if that were to be a possibility or if we think about something like antimicrobial resistance for instance and kind of the interconnections there between you know what is used personally versus on larger scales versus in hospitals and kind of that almost a systems thinking type process and how do we make changes that are, you know, best for human health, animal health, and environmental health. And then there's a book that came out probably about 10 years now at this point called Zubiquity. And the woman who wrote it was a cardiologist and essentially parallels all of these diseases that we see across humans and animals. And so she not only focuses on infectious diseases, but additional things such as she she talks about a case of a um, overeating beagle, I believe, and what, you know, beagles are notorious. They will eat themselves to death if they could. And so what does that mean for somebody who's doing obesity research, for instance? In parrots, for instance, they tend to, if they get stressed, they will pick their feathers out. So, you know, can we learn from that for anxiety in humans? And then there's other cases of cardiovascular disease. And what can we learn from dogs that have condition known as dilated cardiomyopathy? And so kind of drawing these parallels that, you know, just because we think of animals and our pets, I guess, as so different, in reality, we share a lot of the same diseases. And I think that's, you know, I bring up feline coronavirus and 
the outcomes of that for a similar purpose that you know, we've had this disease in cats for 60 years that in a subset of cats is that we know is lethal and causes systemic disease. And so what can we learn from that to apply currently to patients? And likewise, going then the other way that what can we learn from humans to go back and help cats and vice versa? I mean, there's, I'm using that as one example, but other diseases that are out there that, you know, if we kind of use back and forth thinking and collaboration to solve challenges. Well, hopefully more people take that into consideration, whether it's them interacting with their environment, looking at pet diseases and how it correlates to humans and vice versa. If people want to find you, where can they find you? Yeah, um, so I am on Twitter. My Twitter is AllisonStout19. So you can follow me there. I do have our lab website, blogs.cornell.edu forward slash fight FIP. Um, and that's pretty new, but you can find us there. Well, thank you, Allison, for your time. I appreciate it. You just heard an interview with Dr. Allison Stout on how cats can become infected with COVID-19 when their owners are infected. This interview initially aired during WRFI's science radio show, Locally Sourced Science. To listen to the podcast of the show, visit science. that's one word, dot O-R-G. Headlines at the top of our program were written by WRFI contributors Antonio Fermi, Michaela Sabat, and me, Esther Lacusin. Today's feature producer was WRFI and locally sourced science contributor Candace Limper. Fred Balfour was my co-anchor today, and I'm your host, Esther Lacusin. Michaela Sabat is the executive producer of this program. We'll be back tomorrow night and every weekday evening at 6 to bring you more of the stories impacting our communities. On behalf of the entire WRFI news team, take care, be well, and have a good evening. One, two, three. W R F I.